0: your hand. I know it's not too fun to do, but just, just give us a wave real quick. Hey guys, welcome. Thank you for coming to Redeemer. Yep, we are glad that you are here. Uh, we, we, we know that this time of year especially we have people from all over the southeast most likely coming on vacation here in South Walton. And so we're glad you're here. We're glad you're joining us as we worship Jesus Christ. Um, if you are here and you're visiting and maybe you're a local, maybe you, you do live here or you're not a local and want to connect with us, if you look on the back of your worship guide, You're going to see a Connect card right there. And so if you have time today, go ahead and fill that out and drop it in our offering basket, which is over there in the corner of the room by the double doors. So fill that out, just simple information there. And secondly, for those of you who call Redeemer home, uh, we always just want to put it before our people that we are a serving community, that through Jesus Christ serving us, we have the opportunity and the privilege uh, to serve one another. And so if you're interested and maybe you feel like right now, man, I, I, I want to know where I can serve, how I can serve, We have volunteer cards where you can volunteer at Redeemer over here on the front desk, as well as some information on particular areas where you can serve. So please see that front desk right over there if you're looking for areas where you can plug in. Okay, so with that aside, let me uh, also say this. Today we have a privilege. uh, A few weeks ago, four weeks ago, we heard from Dylan Call, one of our pastor candidates, who we're raising up as one of the pastors of our church. And this week we have that same privilege with John Skinner. Many of you uh, know John. Can we welcome him real fast?
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: This is this is a man that I I love. This is a man that I treasure. He's one of my best friends. Um, We we (laughs) we we walk together. We walk together often. Uh, This is this is somebody that I, I trust. And and we were in a DNA group together. We we are friends together. We talk Bible together. This is a man that I I treasure. Uh, but more than any of all that cutie, cutesy stuff, this is a faithful man. This is a man that God has raised up from the grave. God has saved this man, yep. and God has appointed him now to share uh, God's word with us. And so we are here to listen. So let's give this man our attention as he breaks open God's word.
1: <laughs> Thank you. That was excellent. Thank you very much. All right, well, it is a, uh, certainly a pleasure to be up here in front of you guys today. Uh, I have prepared diligently, and uh, I'm humbled by the opportunity, so thank you very much. Um, Let's go ahead and get right into text. Our text today is 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, so if you would, uh, please open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. If you don't have a Bible, there is one uh, in the seat back in front of you. it's a lot of text, yeah, it's, it's chapters, not, not verses, so, um, but we'll, we'll move quickly through it. Um, the plan for this morning is to get into the text and pull out some application of it um, and first address the application that, that benefits the church as a whole uh, and then more importantly we'll look at what God shows us about himself and his character through his dealing with the great king Hezekiah and his people. And then finally, uh, we'll finish up with how God's character affects the application. Um, But before we do that, I want to pray. I I need your prayer, and I I, want to pray for you as well. So if you don't mind, we'll go before the Lord together. And Father, I thank you, and I praise you for your goodness. And Lord, my prayer for myself and us today, is is one that is modeled by our subject here, Hezekiah. In a moment of distress, in a moment of, of helplessness, Lord, he came before you and he said, Lord, we need a deliverance, but it is not in ourselves to do it. We do not have the capability. And Father, I find myself in that place this morning. Lord, you have given me a word, but I don't have the strength to deliver it. And, oh, God, I pray that it pleases you to work through my mouth and that the Spirit of God helps your people. Lord, they cannot receive it on their own. And I pray that it pleases you to soften their hearts and to open their ears. And, Lord, just behold all the riches of your glory. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. All right, so um, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 3. And speaking of Hezekiah, uh, so we're going to uh, go from verse 3 all the way through verse 7. <clears throat> and this is speaking of Hezekiah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. Now that verse, verse number six, is very important. In fact, I'm going to read it again. For he held fast to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And it's important not only because it tells us about the good king and his people, but it's also important because it's used to contrast another story that's running nearly parallel to this one. You see, something awful has happened. Uh, Israel has fallen. So let's just take a second recall. <clears throat> Where we are in the, in the history of Israel is that the, the promised land has been, debi- been divided between two kingdoms under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Uh, Ten of the twelve tribes revolted. They rejected uh, David's dynasty and formed the northern kingdom, uh, also referred to as Israel. And only two of the twelve tribes remained faithful to Rehoboam in David's line. They formed the southern kingdom, also referred to as Judah. It's also helpful to recall that Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom, and Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. All right, so we learn in 2 Kings 18, uh, um, actually, I think it starts. Well, we'll jump right to 18.12, to okay? That, that tells us why uh, the northern king has fallen. So chapter 18, verse 12. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. So that's a pretty clear contrast. Um, the southern kingdom obeyed the Lord, and the Lord was with them. The northern kingdom did not obey, and they have been destroyed. But let me ask you a question. Would it surprise you to learn that the same force, the same trial that God has used to smash the northern kingdom, the disobedient northern kingdom, has now turned and is headed toward the southern kingdom with the intent of destroying it as well? Would it surprise you to know that the people who are following hard after God are now faced with a trial that if understood in its historical context spelled certain doom but they are God in fact in his sovereignty has brought the same trial against Judah now which are now the remnant of his people Isaiah 10 20 that he used to judge Israel what he describes in Isaiah 10 6 is the people of his wrath so in your notes, uh, uh, there's an insert there that may help you follow along if, if you'd like to participate in that. Point number one is that trials come even to the righteous. This narrative reminds us that trials will come and that God will send them for his own purpose. In fact, Jesus is clear to his disciples uh, that they could expect trials just because he was their master. John 15 20. in first Peter uh, chapter 1 verse 6 Peter is writing to first century Christians to encourage them in the midst of trial he writes in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold than perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise in glory in honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So for the believer and unbeliever alike, trials ask you to look up. But trials play a little different role in the life of a Christian. So that leads to a short list, not an exhaustive, a very short list of the purpose of trials in a believer's life. Number one, this may also be in your insert. Number one, trials come in the life of a believer to test your faith trials come to test your faith is your faith genuine does your profession of faith manifest itself in obedience to the teaching of the word when the world tempts you to go contrary to it number two purpose of trial in a believer's life is, to sh- is so that you may know what is in your heart. So that you may know what is in your heart. <clears throat> where do you turn in the midst of trial? The wisdom of the world or the wisdom of the word? Another way to say this is that trials will reveal the idols of your heart. I submit to you that in the midst of trials, you will be moved to, pre- to preserve yourself perhaps your happiness your expectations what you feel that you deserve self is a very common idol number three and most importantly trials come in the life of a believer to sanctify you into the image of his son romans eight twenty-eight. with respect to a life to the life of a christian Everything that God sends your way is with the intention of conforming you into the image of his son, to make you look like Jesus. <clears throat> with respect to me, trials and marriage resonate strongly. <clears throat> As we that are married already know, God will most likely yoke you with somebody that is different than you are, <clears throat> who does not or cannot meet all of your conditions but if they did meet all of your conditions, then how would you ever learn to or understand what it is to love unconditionally? Man, he gets a lot of practice. <laughs> so bottom line, the test of our fate is not whether we experience trials, but how we respond to them. Trials are a gift from God. God ordains them, and he sends them. All right, so we're skipping fast through this text uh, today, and we're about to make a, a very big jump. <clears throat> so let me catch you up before we hop back into the Word. Jerusalem has watched the northern kingdom endure horrible things. Uh, the curses of Deuteronomy 28 are horrible. And from their proximity, uh, I mean, they could, they could nearly see the smoke. Uh, so they're aware firsthand of, of all the implications of, of what, what's facing them. Um, and the, uh, the northern kingdom was under assault for three years before it fell uh, to the Assyrian army. And <clears throat> those people have been exiled from the land of promise and scattered to the wind. They're actually still referred to as the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. Uh, and now this same force, this same force of destruction, the Assyrian, the Assyrian army is at Jerusalem's doorstep. All of the fortified cities that would slow an enemy's advance toward the holy city have fallen, and now all the people of the southern kingdom uh, have pulled back within the walls of the city. And then another character enters the narrative: the Rabshakeh. Now, this is not a title, or this is a title. This is not a name. All right, he is the mouthpiece for the king of Assyria. He stands now with a great force of very evil men at the base of the, Jeru- Jeru- uh, base of the wall of Jerusalem. And the, pe- the people of the city in Jerusalem, they can actually hear him speak. So we're going to pick up in chapter 18, verse 28. Uh, uh, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 28. And I just want to listen to this guy rail against Jerusalem. Um, If you'd like, you can even listen to me read this and perhaps think uh, on how the the Rabshakeh is tempting Judah and compare that to how Satan tempts us. Um, This is is a lot of text. Verse 28 through 35. Um, We may even read it twice. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water from his own cistern. Until I come and I take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephveraphim, Hinnah, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of all the lands have ever delivered their lands out of my hand? that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. See, the Rabshakeh is a professional. And his sole job is to discourage, to scare, and to demoralize the good king Hezekiah and his people. He has done his homework. He knows the language. He knows their fears. He knows their weaknesses. He knows their history. He knows their customs. For our purposes today, the Rabshakeh is the vehicle of temptation. And this brings us to point number two in your notes, is that temptation will accompany trials. Again, temptation will accompany trials. So, if we've established that even the righteous have trials, then we need to understand also that that trials will be accompanied by temptation. And I might suggest to you that temptation will come to you in the same manner as it came to Hezekiah in Jerusalem. There's nothing new about it. It sounds just like his temptation of Eve in the desert. It sounds just like his temptation of Eve in the garden. It sounds just like his temptation of Jesus in the desert. It will come with the same language, the same themes, and with the same purpose. But we can learn something here, and it's my hope that we can see that. Pay attention to what Paul writes to the church in Corinth, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs, in 2 Corinthians 2.11. I'm so thankful that the Word gives us a look here so that we can prepare. So let's go ahead and define temptation from a biblical perspective. And we'll use 2 Corinthians 11.3 as our lens. Paul again writes, But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. So Paul is defining temptation as that which is from Satan, and leads our thoughts away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Puritan John Owen fleshes fleshes that out a little more for us. A temptation then, in general, is anything that, for any reason, exerts a force or influence to seduce and draw the mind and heart of man from the obedience which God requires of him towards any kind of sin. I'm going to read that again. Pure, or, or, sorry. A temptation then, in general, is anything that, for any reason, exerts a force or influence to seduce and draw the mind and heart of man from the obedience which God requires of him towards any kind of sin. In the whole of this narrative, the Rabshakeh issues 17 statements or temptations to the king of his people. They're broken up into three blocks. One set is against Hezekiah and his officials. The second set is directly against the people. The third is to Hezekiah, but it's a direct affront on God. But for our purpose today, uh, in what, what we have looked at, uh, we've looked at those that were directed directly to the people for the sake of application. Those we read in verse 28 and 35. And I'm not going to read it again. But in those verses, uh, we can learn a few things of temptation. And we may have a slide for that. Uh, and this is not exhaustive. This is, this is just what I deduced from, 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 from this, this portion of the text. But I think this is very important, okay? So in those verses, 28 to 35, uh, we, we can learn that temptation will run contrary to God's explicit command. Temptation will run contrary to God's explicit command. Number two, we'll learn that temptation will aim to make you feel like you have been abandoned by God. It will make you feel like you have been abandoned by God. Number three, temptation will attack the character of God number four temptation will aim to create disunity within the body of Christ it will always aim to create disunity within the body of Christ number five temptation will marginalize the consequences of disobedience also one thing that I saw uh, in this narrative and uh, in, in resonated strongly with me as well is that the ulti- ultimately the Rabshakeh's goal was to encourage the people to, to surrender before a battle <coughs> before a battle for the city of Jerusalem would ever begin To plant those seeds of doubt and fear and inability to separate them from the one that would save them and I'll give you an example of how this hits very close to home for me how many times have I gone out to do the Lord's work and that voice in my head starts yapping it's something very simple (laughs) I know that I'm supposed to and I'm compelled to share the gospel with my neighbor but given the opportunity in its context, this voice yaps in my head. But, John, can, can, you, can you refute a single objection to your faith in this context with regards to this right now? Temptation tells me to say nothing now and just be a good neighbor and that he'll see my life and just eventually come around. And Boom. Just like that, I've conceded and lost and come out of the city and given victory to the enemy before the battle could even begin to my shame. What a contrast, though, to Hezekiah's people. You don't need to go there, but verse 36 tells us that in the face of temptation, they resisted and were obedient and did not cave to it. Scripture tells us in verse 36 but that the people were silent and answered him not a word for the king's command was do not answer him the parallel verse in 2nd chronicles says and the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah king of Judah and that's so sweet so another big jump in the text we're headed all the way over to chapter 19 verse 31 Second Kings chapter 19, verse 31. The 30 verses that are that are in between where we dropped off and where we are now uh, are filled with wonderful stuff. Uh, Continue to soul from the Rabshekah to absolutely fantastic prayers uh, uh, to God by Hezekiah. The prophet Isaiah is there beside the king and they work as they should together before a high and holy God and then finally in chapter 19 verse 31 there is a promise for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors the zeal of the Lord will do this And then 32, Therefore, says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And then, God acts. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrak, his god, Adramelech, And Charizor his sons struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esher Haddon his son reigned in his place. Oh, what a wonderful text. See, but verse 34 is very comforting for the Christian. Verse 34, again, reads that, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. The expressed fact here is that God is zealous for his own glory and that he gets glory for himself when he upholds his promises with his people. This should be very comforting for the Christian indeed. And that brings us to our third point. And this is the third point in your bulletin. Our obedience during trials is rooted in the hope that is to come and that the hope that is to come is rooted in the character of God. I'm going to say that again. Our obedience during trials is rooted in the hope that is to come and the hope that, it is, that it is to come is rooted in the character of God. It's important to see here that God is saving Hezekiah in the people of Jerusalem because of something he has already done in the past. So in a sense, even in the midst of his trial, Hezekiah has been delivered, but not yet. And so it goes for us Christians. In the midst of our trials, the trials that, are, that you are in now or the trials that are surely to come. We are also delivered already but not yet. Our ultimate victory was won at our salvation when the blood of Christ was applied to us through repentance and faith in the gospel. And this should be of great comfort to the Christian in the midst of trial. Knowing the ultimate outcome should help us obey in the throes of it. Your strength to obey during the trial, in part, is the knowledge that the battle has already been won in Christ. Another very simple example here. <laughs> As a family, we were watching a movie. We were watching The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I'm sure most of you have seen it before. Where there's that scene where Aslan leaves the camp and he goes to the witch in, in a stone altar. And he he gives himself up to the witch and he allows himself to be bound and humiliated. And there's... You know, all that. But then she takes this dagger and she, she kills him. And I was sitting with my son, Tripp, and Tripp could tell that I was sad. He could tell that I was sad. <laughs> and he looked up to me, and he'd seen it before. He looked at me and said, But daddy, he comes back. <laughs> all that to say, I know the end game. I instantly know the end game. And instantly I can begin to rejoice in the midst of my sorrow. Okay, so to recap, you will face temptation, but please see in this narrative that this narrative is really all about God and his character displayed by his treatment of men through the covenants or promises that he has made with his people. You see this throughout the overall flow of the narrative. That, <coughs> that in this, God is stood up a righteous king and then used evil and brought a trial against him, and and then delivered that righteous king and his people for his namesake, and in the process, smote the evil that he used to bring the trial. You can see something of God's plan of salvation with regards to all mankind here. He used evil to make redemption necessary, then redeems for his glory, and in the process, defeats evil for eternity. And that's the gospel. And that's the gospel. And I tell you that if you are in your trial today and you do not feel the power of the gospel, come talk to us. Come talk to me. Come talk to Josh, to David. If you do not know this Christ who will redeem you for his own glory and empower you for his own namesake, come see us. We will show you him in his word and pray with you. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so gracious, and I love you. Father, I have been helped, and I thank you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.